This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Hello and welcome back. Today I need to uh, cover up something that is a little bit embarrassing. The guest we have on today is Dr. Jeremy Sherman, PhD. I will screw up his name when I introduce him, but we go on anyway, uh, and he corrects me gently as he introduces himself. I'm not going to talk too much about his credentials or background because he does a very good job of explaining who he is at the very beginning there. And uh, I just want to give you a heads up that um, if you thought that most of our episodes are theory heavy, uh, you're about to be surprised because this one is a lot more theory heavy. I do my best to link it all in our show notes on our website, which is linked in the show notes on every platform. So if you want, you can explore that there. But otherwise, uh, enjoy the show. And thanks for Jeremy for coming on. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today we have another very special guest on, Mr. Jeremy Shermer, PhD, and we're going to be talking about psychoproctology. So I'm going to let Jeremy introduce himself and let us know what exactly that is. Hello, you all. Hello. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm Jeremy Sherman, and I've had a lucky life. No accounting for it. Dumb luck. But I've gotten to ride on many of life's amusement park rides. I inherited money early, made me feel guilty, actually, like the burden was on me to do something useful, not untold wealth, but enough that I really could do anything I wanted Mm. and spent my first half of my life, you could say as an activist, primarily an environmental activist. So I lived on the world's largest hippie commune, 1400 people in Tennessee, was an elected elder of it at 24. Wow. Worked in Guatemala doing water projects for a while, then left it and founded a national grassroots lobbying organization with 75 chapters, and then went through a midlife crisis. By this time, I was married, I had three kids, and was feeling like my work wasn't actually yielding the social change that I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I'm 65. I'm a member of the baby boomers. I was one of those guys who thought we were on a continuous uphill progression towards greater civility, greater (laughs) harmony, that kind of stuff. The things that hippies believed. So after the commune, I founded that organization. Then I worked as the head of public affairs for some very big green companies. I lived in England for three years, running public affairs for the body shop, which was this environmental pioneer at the time, and then got a master's in public policy to become a better activist. But it turned out having a different effect on me. It kind of sobered me up about activism. It's almost like I capped a career in activism with an education in it. And my attention started to turn to the wetware, to humans, to what goes on with us, to why we would have counterproductive tendencies by my standard anyway. Mm. And around that time, fell in with a Harvard neuroscientist who I'd met at a conference, Terrence Deacon, and decided I was going to get a PhD while working primarily, I called it at the time, Borscht Belt Buddhist Biology. (laughs) I was going to write a book called Nothing Personal. I decided, okay, well, I might as well get a PhD if I'm going to do all this reading. And then he joined my committee. And then shortly after I got my PhD in what we called evolutionary epistemology, but it's really just understanding the natural history of interpretation, organisms and interpretation. So, you know, how we shop among interpretations, how we choose to behave, or you could say how decisions happen, because it's not necessarily a conscious process. 
process. But, you know, it got me really interested in evolutionary theory. I ended up hanging out with this guy, Terrence Deacon, who had just finished writing an important book on the evolution of language and how it makes us a radically different critter from all sorts of other critters, and had just turned his attention to a really big question that's overlooked throughout the sciences, which is basically, how does trying start? Chemistry doesn't try. Organisms try. They struggle for their own existence. So how do you bridge that gap from matter to mattering? You could say from body to mind. And it's a gap that researchers mostly these days hop on either side of, but don't really talk about the gap and how you explain selves and trying how they emerge. It's not enough to say that that they emerge. Anyway, I remain kind of a social science guy while working with him on the chemical origins of life. So I've been working with him now. He moved to Berkeley shortly after I got my PhD, which was really lucky for me because we could continue jamming. At Harvard, he was known as a saint and a genius. The saint part was that he talked with anybody who was curious about this stuff. He's never pulled rank on me. I mean, I'm not nearly as educated as he is. He's a full senior professor at Berkeley. But we go on dog walks and we talk through this stuff and we think about the whole range of behavior. So what I am now is a cradle-to-grave researcher from the origins of life, the cradle, to our grave situation. And a big chunk of that in recent years, which just yielded a book a couple of weeks ago, is what I call psychoproctology, which is a light name for a dangerous subject that I think we've got to address or we're in real trouble. It's basically the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of assholery. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what psychoproctology is. And I am not an expert in it. I don't think you can be an expert in it. I am a specialist in it. It all started maybe 25 years ago with me asking a question, what is a butthead since it can't just be anyone I happen to butt heads with? (laughs) So I'm seeking an objective definition, as objective as possible. I don't think you could ever have an objective definition. Right. So I just finished my magnum opus on it, though I hope it's not my magnum opus because I finished it maybe six months ago and I thought of things I should have included. But it's called What's Up With Assholes? How to Spot and Stop Them Without Becoming One. And it's basically dealing with the question, how do you humbly humble people who will do anything to avoid humility. Yes. Wow. Love it. I love your use of language. You're very creative with it. Got it real dialed in. And for our listeners, for those who don't know what a proctologist is, can you remind us? Yeah, it's an anus and rectum doctor. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I should be clear, I am not a fan of the word. I use the word one time in the book. It just happens to be the word in folk psychology, in everyday psychology. Everybody knows it. It's a hot current term. And yet it's been interesting to watch how the psychological community responds to the word. You can't talk about it. I was going to call my blog about it with Psychology Today, Psychoproctology. They said, no, you can't do that. You can call it Jerkology. I spend the first 150 pages of the book trying to come to a better definition, (laughs) a, a more accurate term than asshole or any of the other vulgar terms or any of the clinical terms that describe a subset. So there's narcissists and psychopaths and dark triad personalities makes it sound like something that, you know, afflicts some people maybe congenitally. I think it's a broader category than that. And I actually focus a lot on why we would want to be assholes. It's an extraordinarily tempting option available to humans. And I would argue because we have language, there are plenty of parasites and predators in the biological world, but I think asshole is a human thing. And I think it's an opportunity, this pressure and opportunity to become an asshole if you've got language. 
Yes. So <laughs> from what you're saying and what I've heard you say elsewhere, it seems like somebody who would be a butthead or I guess an asshole would be somebody who kind of appears to be someone who likes to find certainty and hold on to it both hands as much as possible, regardless of what happens around them. Is that kind of in the vein of what you're yeah, talking so about? So my methodology is different. I don't pour over the current academic literature as deeply as some do. My approach is different. I call myself an originist. I cannot really claim to know what's going on with a category of behavior like asshole or organism unless I can explain its emergence from what precedes it. I'm operating on an assumption that's kind of overlooked in some aspects of research, which is that the earlier sciences have to explain what the later sciences assume. So I don't just get to drop in some category of behavior. I have to explain how it emerges from what precedes it. So this relates to your question. It may seem a long walk, but let me show you this. All organisms have to be selectively interacting with their environments. The fundamental challenges are self-protection and self-repair even before self-reproduction. Since we're all operating in the universe where everything is degenerating, we have to regenerate what degenerates, and we have to protect against degeneration. So all organisms do that. They take in food, but they protect themselves against toxins, that sort of thing. Well, when you bring that into the human realm, you get confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is selective interaction where you keep out the ideas that mangle your mojo and you take in the ideas that regenerate your mojo. And for normal people, confirmation bias is a problem they realize they have to manage. They have to sometimes take in negative feedback. For buttheads, confirmation bias becomes the solution to all of their problems. So, yes, it is fake infallibility. When you think about the origins of life, I think of it as the origins of trying. There are no formulas. Yoda's wrong. I mean, he may be motivational. There's only trying. That's all there is. Yes, in retrospect, you can say whether the trying worked or didn't work, but all organisms are trying, including humans, even though we can pretend as though we're not trying, as though we've got the perfect formula that's certain to achieve perfect success, an appetite that could motivate any of us. So that's fallibilism. That's the recognition that we're all trying. Fallibilism is a concept coined by the philosopher Charles Saunders Peirce, and I distill it down to no matter how confident I am in a bet, I must remain still more confident that it is a bet. And the alternative to it is what you describe. It's fake infallibilism. You become basically self-winding. No matter how the world shakes you, it always winds you up. It always proves that you're right about everything. <laughs> so I was going to ask if you thought there was a correlation on the political spectrum, but then I think a more pointed question might be whether you think there's a correlation between being an asshole and maybe fear of death or religiosity, because both of those kind of try to solve that problem by giving you the answers from, as you've mentioned, on high, like somebody that's appealing to God or appealing to a higher power so that we don't have to grapple with that as much. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I'm actually going to answer both questions because I think they're wonderful. First of all, my book is nonpartisan, not out of some kind of sense that everybody is equally an asshole or no one's an asshole or anything. That's a popular move often delivered both sides of the mouth by assholes. No, I think that there are clear standards by which we can judge assholery and that there will be different episodes in history when people are meeting the standards to different degree. Different cultures or cults will be the assholes of the day. That is, the epidemics will tend to favor one or another another ideology. So if I was writing my book in the 1930s, it would be about the assholes who posture as leftists, the communists. I don't think that it's about beliefs at all. I actually don't think that assholes have beliefs. The term I come up with, which I think is more accurate, is Trump bots. <laughs> 
not because of Donald Trump, even though he is a perfect one. It's because his name is a double entendre. It means bullshit. It means fake. Trumped up means fake. All right. Trumped all lay is optical illusions. And it also means beats everything. Mm. So I think of buttheads as robotically playing trumped up trump cards. I think that's accurately what's going on with them. So it's not about beliefs at all. In fact, in treating them or trying to make being a butthead costly, which is how I think we have to treat them, you don't engage with them on their ideas. They're not engaged with their ideas. They'll say anything. You can tell they're not into their ideas because you watch, they don't walk their talk at all. So it's not about what they believe. But I think of being a Trump bot as the same bullshit with different branding. And in a different era, I would say that the branding would have favored the left. These days, I would say it favors the right, though there are cults and countercults. So from my definitions, cult is just plural of asshole. It's like a <laughs> gaggle of geese. And there are cults and countercults. You know, for example, the communist cult spawned the libertarian cult. The Catholic cult spawned the Protestant cults. So there will be a tendency for everybody to escalate in what I call an infallibility battle, where someone's going to prove right about everything and someone's going to prove wrong about everything. Yeah, you'd get cults and countercults. So to be clear, yes, I do think it favors right now the right wing. And to your second point, I think any path you take has detours to assholia. That is, you can fall down into this Trump-botic behavior no matter what path you're on. Why? It's way easier playing God than it is to be human. Hmm. Just hugely easier. And that's one of the main points in my book is we can talk about this as a pathology. We can talk about pathologies are wrong, but we've got to talk about why they're tempting. There would be lots of willful or motivated psychopathy in this world. But to your second point, yes, there are certain ideas and supernatural ideas would be perfect for this that would have nice, wide, slippery paths down into assholia. Because you're claiming allegiance with something that is both unknowable and supreme. So basically what a Trump bot is playing is wild card Trump cards. They can say or believe anything, and whatever they say or believe trumps everything else. That's what a human would want. They'd want perfect safety and perfect freedom. So you get the freedom from the wild card and you get the safety from the Trump card. You're unassailable. And yes, supernaturalism is just gorgeous for that. It's exquisite because it's not just that the supernatural is unknown. It's that it's unknowable. There's no access to it. Nobody can counter your argument except you can say, well, it still could be because you're talking about a region beyond all sense data. You can't get access to it. So you can posit whatever you want about that area. And I have progressive, sweetheart, leftist friends who think it's perfectly fine to cite some supernatural cause, the higher power that they're aligned with. And I say to them, dude, if you think you can do it for a good cause, what's to stop ISIS from doing it? Hmm. They think it's for a good cause too. Anyway, so yes, I would say supernaturalism makes it easy, but I also think you can be an atheist a-hole. You can be a Buddhist a-hole. You can be a leftist a-hole. You can be a, you know, once again, same BS, different branding. Right, right. It's pretty much like you could be anywhere on the political spectrum, any kind of category or identity. It's just the belief that you are always right at all costs and defending it in very kind of callous, attacking ways to kind of protect that always rightness. What you're saying sounds a lot like something we already talked about on this podcast, which is the concept of naive realism. And your work, Phil and I agree, sounds like a crusade against naive realism. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yes, it is an argument against, one time I talked about it as eliminate the middleman versus illuminate the middleman. So eliminate the middleman is I have the view from nowhere. I can transcend my human biases and enter a state where I am getting reality directly. This is what revelation has always been about. That's a kind of naive realism. And my business has always been about illuminating the middleman. That is making very clear that we all come with a bunch of biases accumulated through evolutionary history and through the learning of our lifetimes. There is no view from nowhere. It's just a way to pull rank, a convenient thing to believe. So I end up doing battle with other people in the psychopharmacology world. For example, you get a book like Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, I think, about the revelations he got from ayahuasca and mushrooms. I've taken those drugs. They're wonderful, but garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) It's not at all like you're somehow transcending and discovering that you're not a self. If you weren't a self, you'd be dead. And anyway, it's a concept that you're not a self. You don't escape this stuff. We're not going to escape it. We don't get that view from nowhere. So yes, we are on the same topic. (laughs) So I was wondering what you thought, because this all seems to be to do with, like you said, different cults and different pathways. And even, as you said, atheists could be assholes. So people argue that people's militancy towards atheism kind of borders on a cult or a religion itself and kind of falls to the altar of rationalism, I guess. But I'm wondering what you think about like the fall of mainstream religions, because a lot of, I think, people who ostensibly say that they're part of those religions or follow them, they might be culturally those religions, but they don't actually practice. Alongside that, we've seen a kind of rise of cults of various kinds, often non-religious, like, I don't know, veganism could count or CrossFit and the dying of our kind of, as I see it, the information organs and sense-making organs of our society. Do you see this all like increasing the odds of assholes kind of becoming more of a norm or is it just kind of a pervasive thing that's always present? No, I, I actually think it's on the rise. My last ayahuasca trip was a bummer that I was grateful for, but it happened <laughs> to be on the day that Kavanaugh was oh, elected yeah. to our Supreme Court. Oh, so wow. I was in a kind of downer mood. And the insight I got from that was that we were on a dissociation death spiral. That is, reality gets harder and harder to face. And so people will seek escapism. And this was partly because I was in the company of a bunch of New Agers who were seeking a kind of purity. You know, you take ayahuasca with other people around. And I just noticed I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who are seeking purity or seeking perfection the way you might in CrossFit or veganism. I'm primarily vegan. I'm vegan at home. I think climate crisis is real, and I think that's a reason to cut back. I eat meat when I'm out, but I don't find in me, though it could be there, an appetite for purity in that sense. But there's a kind of dissociation from reality that would happen, thereby leaving us more neglectful of reality, therefore it getting worse, therefore making us escapist more. I think it's gotten much harder to be alive than it used to be for a lot of reasons. One of them is the decline of the institutional religions. That is, I think we suffer a kind of conviction impairment, which I thrive on. I'm grateful for the opportunity to think my own thoughts. But at the same time, it does come at a cost to our sense of safety and freedom. And so one way or another, yes, I think we're in for a lot more of this. And I'll go a step further, which is to argue that intelligent life anywhere in the universe, by intelligent life, I think what we mean is life that uses language like humans do. So a symbolic species anywhere in the universe would probably go extinct through a dissociation death spiral. I think that climate change and nuclear threats have probably occurred many times in the universe before, as have climate change denial, which is something you can do with language. That is, language makes us a much more anxious species 
and a much more escapist species. We are more visionary and more delusional than any other species. So it would both give us extraordinary burdens. When you think about what you could worry about before going to sleep in comparison to what a dog could, no contest. Humans have way more potential real and imaginary threats and missed opportunities to worry about. And we have more ways to rationalize not thinking about them than any other creature. And I think that's a function of symbols. That is because we have language, we have concepts. And concepts are the problem, buddies. Your podcast is the problem. Oh, damn. You <laughs> got us. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we are the problem. Yeah, in which case, what am I? <laughs> just uh, the doctor. <laughs> you're enabling yeah, you're just I'm enabling you by offering concepts. No, so, so, <laughs> so yes, there's been a lot of this throughout history. We happen to be talking on Universe Doomsday. If you scrunch the universe's history into one year, today is the day of the Permian extinction, <laughs> mm. which was 95% of all marine species dying and 70% of all land species dying. It was a real bummer. Wait, so you're saying this is what happened back with the dinosaurs? No, this is actually before the dinosaurs. So what I'm saying is if you scrunch the entire universe's history into one year that started on January 1st, 2021, I mark all of these geological, these universe history days as their holidays for a guy who's not religious. Today is the day when actually Actually, it was climate change, they're saying now. They used to think it was an impact explosion, you know, a meteor. Oh. But some researchers are speculating that it was climate change. But one way or another, that was a whole lot of life lost. So I don't think it's the end of life, but I think dissociation death spirals would make symbolic species short-lived. We would have this capacity to figure out how to exploit all sorts of resources the way humans have. And we would also have the capacity to deny the consequences of it, of language again. Right. Yeah. So on the Fermi paradox, you kind of fall on the side that species that have existed come out to a certain point and then destroy themselves before reaching out. Yeah, but it would be the symbolic species primarily. Right. That is, I think language makes us a radically different critter. So a lot of my research is about adapting under the drunken influence of language. And a lot of my peace of mind comes from recognizing, I call it anthro-introspeculation. <laughs> That's too much. It's anthro-introspeculation is what it is. It's basically, <laughs> here I am, this mid-sized mammal among a posse of other such critters who have this newfangled thing called language. You know, in a universe year, we've lasted all of three seconds. If we go extinct within the next 10,000 years, which if you were a betting person, you might surmise was a possibility, that tells you how complicated it is adapting to reality under the influence of language. Like I say, it gives us confirmation bias hmm. and it tempts us to use confirmation bias as a solution to all our problems. Right. Yeah. Wow. Everything you're talking about is right in line with kind of concepts we've talked about before or the spirit of our podcast, you know, concepts. It reminds me of social constructionism. I know you've dabbled in sociology as well. This is kind of my area and it was kind of an in vogue concept when I was doing my research. Everyone was talking about social constructionism. And so is this kind of something that you've kind of been able to incorporate as well? Yeah though I actually think it falls short. So if we're talking about the postmodern social constructionism, I think it's an accurate description of what goes on with humans. But I want to point out, we don't just have to get along with each other. You know, you could say 
capitalism and politics has largely been about getting along with each other or meeting each other's demands. We have to get along with reality. And though we will debate what reality contains, I don't think there's actually much debate about the container. The container is all the threats and opportunities that will fuck you up if you ignore <laughs> them. Basically, it comes down to that. And so even someone who wants to argue that God is real is working within that assumption about what reality is, the container itself. And right. the only rule I can find for 3.8 billion years of history is adapt to reality or die. So I think humans are in a complicated position around this. I think we're adapting basically in three realms. We are adapting to each other. I call that adapting to the liked story. That is the locally liked story. We're adapting to reality, which is what I call the likely story. That is, we're in pursuit of the likelier story, you know, so you don't fall off cliffs, that kind of thing. And the third one is the most vivid and present. We have to adapt to ourselves. We have to feel comfortable in our own skins. So for me, it's an interesting relationship between the three. The one that feels the most immediate and pressing is adapting to myself, comfort in my own skin. This would be a big motivator for confirmation bias. Adapting to reality is the most important long-term goal, and that's what organisms have proven capable of doing for 3.8 billion years. The in-between one, the intermediary, is adapting to your local culture, which can give you reality checks or can be a local cult that's denying reality to give you, you know, whatever is socially popular. So one of the interesting things about capitalism is, for me, and this is after working as a green capitalist, you know, I work for these companies that were trying to save the world while they were making money. Mm. My sense is that they're really good at satisfying our needs, but the customer is always right is not right. Mm. Reality is always right. But you'll do better if you treat the customer as though they're always right. And so the social constructionists, I don't know how much they pay attention to the fact that underneath it all, there really is a reality and right. that we are adapting right. to that, that it's not all just constructed out of thin yes. air. And the liked story, the socially dominant norms and stories and concepts will tend to dominate and they are to a large extent constructed, but they're constructed by critters that come from a long line of critters that have been adapting to reality and that hasn't ended. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a real epistemological conundrum you pose there and going to this reality and what is it, what is it considered? of and how do we approach its nature without becoming dogmatic and then kind of being the butthead of sorts that you, you've been really arguing against. And so how can we know what this reality is is really, I guess, epistemological, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of my work, you'd call it philosophy of science. It's how do you shop better among interpretations, knowing that you can't shop perfectly. Right. I remain a fallibilist, mm. which means that no matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. That's the heart of this work. I mean, that's what you realize when I say that life only tries, that is, we try to find the mm. right answer. So you've got that fundamental, but a lot of my work is basically on what I'll pretentiously call a third scientific revolution. <laughs> I'm a major fan of science. I do believe it's the best way to guess our way forward. At the same time, I spend a lot of my time arguing that scientists are not paying attention to a fundamental question, what is trying and how did it start, that scientists these days are dancing between two versions of things, the mechanistic model of reality and the, the teleological one. So we can talk about cause and effect mechanisms, or we can talk about means to ends effort, but we don't have a good bridge between them. So I work on that and I, I poke in science about that. But right. more fundamental than that, I think the first scientific 
Revolution brought rigor to formalism. That was Pythagoras, and then a kind of dark ages around formalism that lasted about 1,500 years, and then a return to it through, you know, Copernicus is making stabs at it. You've got a bunch of people who are making stabs at it, and Newton makes a very successful stab at greater formalism in our understanding. But you've also got Tycho Brahe and, and Kepler, who are also bringing in the second scientific revolution, which is empiricism. So if you look at those two, formalism is deduction, and empiricism is induction. Right, right. But Peirce yeah. is actually arguing there's a third kind of logic that gets overlooked, and it's called abduction, and it's basically how you categorize things. It's the most fundamental of all. And I'm arguing that we need to bring rigor to abduction. Our categorization at present, it's basically impressions justified with evidence. So you get a bunch of different theories about consciousness, uh. and they all employ various categories, and they argue against each other, but we have no standard by which to decide which model is better since they all fit the contours of empiricism somewhat. Well, it all depends on where you got your categories from. So let me just list some of the things I think will help bring rigor to abduction abduction, to categorization. One is originism. You don't get to really claim to understand a category unless you can explain how it emerged from what came before it. Another is emergent reductionism. It's basically the reverse of that, which is once you have explained how a category emerges from what precedes it, you can then reduce to that explained category. And I could name a couple others, but I'm simply going to name one more, which is ergodynamic. That is, what we're talking about when we're talking about different categories is we're talking about changes in work. How is the work of self-regeneration, how does that emerge from physical work? It's a change in likeliness. You are more likely to keep your stuff together in the next moment than you would if you were dead. So how did that emerge in the first place. It's a physical change in work. So it's not enough to come up with mathematical models. I think we're suffering these days from what you could call crypto-Cartesianism, which is the assumption that you got this software, the res Cartesians, that runs on hardware by means of variations on analytic geometry. I mean, it's all Cartesian. So you got software, hardware models, and you're not paying attention to the fact that the likely work in the universe is towards degeneration. And your models don't have any of that because the software is non-material and it's instantiated in material machines that you're assuming are going to stay reliable computers for example right. they're not busy degenerating well i'm degenerating all day long that's why on my slowest day i have to regenerate 240 billion new cells just to keep myself together and i do that with no feeling and no consciousness so if you're not even paying attention to that stuff and you simply posit these categories your algorithmic models that you impose on material that's not science, it's metaphorical engineering. So while disparaging the current state of things in my particular, the rose I hoe, I believe in science. I think it's the best way to get at this stuff. And part of it is to get what you want, set aside what you want long enough to see what is. And you can't set it aside perfectly. I mean, we are biased, but I do think that science does a better job of taming our appetites than other approaches. So what I'm hearing there, if I want to bring it down a little bit to be more approachable to the audience, is that you're kind of taking a step past postmodernism because postmodernism seems to kind of challenge the assumptions of science. And you're saying that we should kind of double down on science. And that's another topic we almost talked about was sophology. You seem to want to formalize a study of wisdom. That seems, now that I see it and hear you talk, it, it seems like that's the, kind of the through line. You want to figure out how we can objectively look at what wisdom is and what ways of knowing in a more structured way. Is that accurate? That's true. Let me just say one more thing about the 
the postmodern approach. I coined a term maybe 25 years ago, defaulty logic. <laughs> Since they're wrong, we must be right by default. Mm. That would be a really attractive thing. I think that buttheads employ that a whole lot. I've been dealing with some trolls in the last few days, and it just feels <laughs> like what they're saying is, since science doesn't have all the answers they do, since other people could be wrong, yep. they must be right by default. Definitely come across right. that. So I think we often join some movement for the cause, but we stay for the strut. We stay for the sense that we are above it. And I have no appetite for postmodernism because of that. I think it's become a smug alternative, even while it's got all sorts of insights that have been useful. And even though I pay a lot of attention to the various constructs that we come up with, I think that it's ended up falling into this kind of defaulty logic. And so, no, I'm not drawn to that. But Yes, you're right. So one of the things I noticed, this was just a couple of months ago, of all the research fields, philosophy has a peculiar name. And partly because it came about so early on, it means love of wisdom. Well, every butthead claims they love wisdom. <laughs> you know, anybody can say they love wisdom, and right. most do. So I just noticed that the right term for it would be sophology, which would be the study of what wisdom is. Yeah. And wisdom would also be one of these terms. Once again, it's a category, and I'm interested in explaining categories from their origins. I think that wisdom is about better decisions, betterness or normativity, good and bad, better or worse, I think emerges with life. That is, it's always with respect to trying to do something better or worse for some effort made by a self. Hmm. So I see the proto-wisdom as adaptation. Mm. And what is adaptation? It's basically a kind of responsiveness where you do different things in different situations. So believe it or not, I find I meditate a lot. I've probably written over 150 articles working with the structure or form of the serenity prayer. And I've made multiple variations on it for dealing with the different tough judgment calls that we deal with, we humans deal with, but also with organisms, what they deal with. But think about the formulation itself. You got a certain motivation to have a certain response under certain situations. You have a different motivation to have a different response under different circumstances. And what you're seeking, what you're praying for, but not to anybody who knows, but what you're seeking is refinement. You want to avoid false positives and false negatives on both responses. You don't want to have the serenity to accept what you could improve or the courage to change what you can't improve. You're trying to minimize both errors. Increasingly, right. I see it as like driving a winding road. You got to watch out on both sides of the road. And there is no wisdom formula where you respond always the same ways. And yet you will find throughout society all these fundamentalists who will say the equivalent of on this winding road that's getting built as we travel it, always steer your wheel all the way to the right, which is just nonsense. That's not wisdom. That's a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth, and it's dangerous. you got to watch out on both sides of the road. So for me personally, my equanimity comes from being equally anxious on opposite sides of the road. So my idea of perfect peace is to be equally worried that I'm too assertive or not assertive enough for the situation. And it also makes learning easier because I don't feel like I failed some universal fundamental principle. I just have to adjust my driving a little bit. So in that sense, that's where I go for wisdom. Actually, wisdom would be attention to the dilemmas. I don't think the serenity prayer captures wisdom to know the difference. I mean, in case anybody there doesn't know the serenity prayer, it's grant me the serenity to accept what I can't change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I don't think wisdom to know makes any sense. What I think we're talking about is wisdom to notice the differences that make a difference to when you should do which of opposite things and to what <laughs> right. degree. 
Yeah. So highly contextual oh, yeah. is kind of where you're going with yeah, this. Yeah, no, that's right. And not only that, I've come down, this is only about two months old, but I have decided that fallibilist irony is the right response to life. It's the adaptive response. Here's what I mean. What do we mean by an ironic situation? We mean when a good bet turns out bad or a bad bet turns out good. There's fringes to that, but that's the heart of it, you know? I thought I'd found the woman of my dreams, and ironically, it turned out she was a woman of my nightmares. Or I thought I'd made the worst mistake in my life, and ironically, it turned out the best it could have. So that's fundamental. If you look at physics, there will be shifts. Winds change, for example, not caused by anybody. And we living beings are trying to track the changes, which means that I could be sailing and change my sails to change with the winds and get the timing wrong and drown. But it also means that life is inescapably slapstick. And so that's what I mean. It's incredibly serious. And it's a hoot. It's just a hoot. All of our failings. I mean, life serves us banana peels. <laughs> You're looking for traction to go forward and you end up slipping backwards. That is not escapable. So fallibilist irony is my guess. And I think of it as the antidote to fundamentalist hypocrisy, where you claim you should always drive to the right side of the road, though you don't. Of course, nobody could. Or you claim that there's no road to drive and therefore you can do whatever the hell you want, which is I'd call that cynical hypocrisy. No, I think fallibilist irony. I am really trying to guess right. It could cost a whole lot if I don't. And I recognize that I'm guessing. Yeah, interesting. So one of the facets that came up when I was thinking about that is jerks and buttheads, I think you've kind of pointed out they don't really have their own stance or even thought. It's more just focused on winning, right? And that makes me think about fascism as defined by the book, The Anatomy of Fascism, where they argue in that book that it can come from the left or the right. So it's still kind of apolitical, though historically it's always occurred from the right so far. And in that stance, one of the key ingredients of that is that they're constantly talking about how they are always winning. They're always right. The kind of, I think you talked about the wild card, trump card, two-step thing, where they'll just kind of take anything that served to them and redefine the term so that they are correct. So I think if I picked that up correctly, this seems to be a trend in society from what you're saying. Do you see the risk of fascism going up? Do you think this is related? Yeah, I do, though I read books on fascism, but I actually don't make the distinction between the kind of European mid-century fascism we got from Mussolini, Franco, and Hitler, and the communist version. I actually think that there's way more in common. Once again, it's not about what you claim to believe, but how you strut it. I don't think they believe the things they claim to believe so much that it trumps all other considerations. I don't think that's what's going on. And so I'm looking for a more generic or broader inclusive category. And yes, I would say that it's going up. And I want to make a connection. This was one of my favorite insights in writing this book. You know, however I talk here, it's really accessible. I've had blue collar workers reading this book because they're dealing with someone they thought was an a-hole and <laughs> saying they got it. And I talked to them and yeah, they got it. So I call it advanced psychoproctology for beginners. It's really accessible. <laughs> so the publishers were wrong about you then, eh? Because I remember at one point in your podcast, you mentioned how they thought that it was too light for academics, but too high or too heavy for lay people. Yeah, no, that's the struggle. Over my desk, I have two signs. One says, dig deeper, it's more complicated than you've noticed. And the other says, keep it simple, stupid. Mm. No, that's where I live. I'm happy to write there. It's all me looking for as simple as possible, no simpler, and probably not quite as simple as you want it. This is also where fallibilist irony comes in. As you can tell, I'm mouthy. <laughs> I mean, I say that I'm glad that my lack of appetite finally caught up with my lack of aptitude when it comes to partnering. I'm too mouthy at close range, but I do get to lubricate social situations through a lot of self-effacing irony. That is, I do, in my bones, know that I'm a 
doofus who's guessing. I'm a bozo on this bus. I mean, I think the Me Too movement stopped short. Me Too about everything. I'm human. Nothing human <laughs> is foreign to me. We all do this stuff to some yeah. degree or another. But we were talking about fascism. One of my favorite insights from that book was recognizing a parallel between what all organisms would want, what theology claims about God, and what's called the dark triad personality. And it's basically a shell game you play where because you are omnificent, that is all good, it is your duty to win. And since it's your duty to win, you can be as cunning or Machiavellian as possible. So that first step is narcissism. It is, I am omnificent. I am all good. So because I'm all good, it's my duty to win so I can use any cunning trick. I can be all-knowing. And because I'm all-knowing, I can be psychopathic to win. And because I win, that proves that I am all virtuous. I don't think that buttheads think that might makes right. I think they actually want it both ways. And Christ would be a beautiful image for this. So he's both the oppressed martyr, he's the oppressed sufferer, which proves that might makes wrong. But when he's winning, might makes right. That is, he's the king of kings. <laughs> so, of course, you would go for that. And, of course, you get both from Trump. And you get a flip on each one of those. That's the shell game. So, you know, I don't know everything I know everything that matters. I'm always good. There's no deed too dirty for a saint like me. You know, what you'll <laughs> get from buttheads is they will shame you for failing to meet moral standards and in the same breath laugh at you for caring about moral standards. They want it both ways. They'll play prudish pope or they'll play petulant brat. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's a shell game. So how do they pull off the shell game? The fourth trait. So I just implied the three traits that we associate with God. He's omnificent, that is all good, all-knowing, omniscient, and omnipotent, all-powerful. Okay, they aren't all those things all at the same time. When they're down, for example, they claim that they should be winning, but they're not. But what they are is the final trait that we don't have a term for, which is God's oneness. If you ask a theologian if God could make a mountain so big he can't move it, which would prove that he's not omnipotent, he's somnipotent, he's got some power, they'll say, no, he would never do that because he's got perfect integrity. He would never do that. It's off the record. So I think what holds the shell game together, the dark triad shell game for Butthead, is simply consistency on one thing, the false claim that they are consistent. They have perfect integrity. Mm, I love it. I love that description. And I do wonder, because we are coming to the holidays and, you know, people are getting together with <laughs> family and, you know, maybe some people listening might know a butthead or two in their life. And I'm wondering if you have some practical tips on how to deal with this type of individual. Yeah, how to defeat relatives. <laughs> right. So I have two, but I should caveat them both. It's very dangerous to try this at home. And yet we've got <laughs> Leave to. Leave it to a professional. No, 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 no. It's our civic duty. So what I'm I'm arguing is that playing God or God's servant, that is name dropping God, you know, basically humbling yourself before God so you can lord it over everybody else. And God could be an atheist hero or it could be Trump or eh, it doesn't matter. But once again, none of that matters. I'm just saying that playing that wild card Trump card is so advantageous for a human being. It's so much easier than being human and dealing with doubt and anxiety, ambiguity, ambivalences, all of that sort of stuff. That no one will drop it unless it costs them. So it is our civic duty to make it cost them. I spend 200 pages in this book trying to come to clarity about how you would guess whether you're dealing with a Trump bot, with an asshole. And then I suggest two techniques that I think are way underutilized. One is fierce fallibilism. So, for example, these guys will shame you for whatever. They'll shame you for shaming. 
And the infallible says, of course I shame, like you do, like everybody does. The difference is I'm trying to figure out when to shame and when not to, whereas you're pretending that you don't shame when, of course you do, you just did. You shame me for shaming. <laughs> that is, every one of those moral cudgels that people use are actually self-negating. You shouldn't be judgmental is a judgment. Do not be negative as negative. Commit yourself to flexibility is a commitment. Be intolerant of intolerance is intolerant. That doesn't mean they're bogus. It means they're dilemmas. And the smart money is on trying to figure out when to apply which of those two opposite things. When to be intolerant, when to be tolerant. So if someone calls me a name call, I say, of course I'm name call. I don't just want a name call. I want a name call with surgical precision. Whereas you just called me a name <laughs> caller, which is name calling. And you're clearly not paying any attention to it. So that's one piece of it. And the book is really largely training and infallibilism. That's what is underneath because it's showing you the contrast doesn't work, this fake infallibilism. The other technique I think is easier to apply. These guys are one-trick phonies. Their minds have atrophied. You know, we talk about narcissists as having low ego structure or limited ego structure and that they're compensating by being narcissists. Well, I would also say that narcissism would make ego structure atrophy. You do not want to see yourself. You do not want to see yourself. That's why these guys are mindless swellheads. That's why they take up so much space, but there's nobody home. So they've lost that. They're one-trick phonies, is what I would say. And you call them on that, and they've got nothing to respond with. So it's basically like if you tell someone that they're being defensive, there's nothing they can say in response that doesn't affirm it. If you say you think it's all about you or you say it's not all about you, once again, there are a bunch of things that the more you fight them, the more you stick. And I think it's inappropriate to use those with decent people, but I think anything's fair game with these guys <laughs> as long as you know that you're using these tricks. So I would say, look at this guy. He'll say or do anything to feel heroic. You know, he'll say or do anything to prove he's right. And you just hammer away at that. You just comment on their one trick that they're using. Yeah, they're not paying any attention to what they're saying. Basically, what's going on is we are playing three-dimensional chess with them, and they're operating on a completely different different dimension where none of the content matters. It's why we keep on getting flummoxed by actually taking it seriously. Both of those techniques I just mentioned are the antidote to the impotent reaction to them. So people who are trying to be good, if you shame them for shaming, will tend to get defensive. Like, no, no, I wasn't shaming. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to be negative or whatever. Yeah. They got you on the run. They don't care about shaming or being negative at all. They'll pull out whatever. So owning that you shame, owning the human traits that we all have, you know, you're just saying that because you hate us. Of course I hate you guys. I mean, <laughs> I hate what you're doing. I love you as a person. I don't care about the sort of ideas that you're swinging around because you don't care about them. But I do fucking loathe the hilt of your sword, which is this Trump bot wild card, Trump card formula. No, I despise it. Don't get hooked in by content and don't argue them on a content. No, level. and don't argue argue that they're bad people just argue right. the game you are playing is yes. a cheap game any play can play it takes no effort at all you're just claiming your interpretation wins and you're claiming to be the judge who decides whose interpretation wins and it's all yours i mean there's a dozen ways to say it and you stay on that tenaciously and everything they do you can say see what he did there same damn thing 
same thing. He did it again. Yeah. Right. I actually proposed that to a friend of mine, and he pointed out that that could lead to some sort of arms race where you point out what they're doing, and then they point out that you're doing your metagame. So how do you get out of that loop? Well, in my book, I have some suggestions about it. Basically, what they're doing is going meta on every meta move. You <laughs> simply point out that they'll do that. I know what you are, but what am I is what they'll do over and over. I suppose you could also point out that they're dodging between two things. One is they're claiming that that's a shameful behavior, and then they're saying that we all do it, so what the hell? So that's that business where they're mocking you. You know you do that. You're the one who's immoral here. And they're also saying, so what? You know, you do it too, so that's obviously a free-for-all, and I'm going to do it better than you. There are ways you can surmount all of their meta moves by simply pointing out that they'll take any meta move to do it that they're not paying any attention to what they're saying. And I guess refocusing back on how the conversation started, I suppose, like the actual topic of what you're debating? No? I think that's dangerous because I think it gets you into content. You might be able to say that they're not paying any attention to it, but one way to look at this is I have a friend who says he doesn't allow conversations to go meta. He's married to a psychologist, and he says, (laughs) I don't because it's infinite. I don't know if you've seen the Monty Python argument clinic where they're arguing about whether they're arguing about whether they're arguing It goes on and on. I love that stuff. (laughs) Humor is largely based on that kind of going meta business. I argue to this friend. So he says, no, you got to stay on the ground level. And I say, no, you can't do that. That doesn't work because your argument is about what is the ground level. You know, if I said to you, let's get back to the ground level and then I assert what the ground level is, you know, (laughs) that's me basically what I call Trump hiring. It's me playing the umpire in a way that trumps and frame dominates. That is, I get to decide what we're talking about and I get to pretend that I'm doing it with no bias. Right. So it's complicated. And then, by the way, I can say I've had a lot of success with these techniques, but the success is extremely disappointing. What it is, success with a butthead, is that they walk off to easier places to play and they call me a loser and a quitter on the way out the door. Loser or quitter or whatever, you know, that's as good as you're going to get with these guys, but that doesn't mean you didn't cost them. See, I think what they're really doing is they're exhibitionists. They sidle up as if they want a conversation, and then they open their trench coat and show off their stiff little infallibility. And however you respond, they've got a way to claim triumph. It's like sea lioning, which is where they keep pretending that they're being civil and forcing you to do stuff or trying to get you to do stuff that you don't want to do. Like they'll overhear a conversation and interject and make a point that counters the conversation they're not part of. And then when you don't want to engage with them, they'll say, I'm being civil here. Why can't you talk to me? That's right. So no matter what you do, They have a formula, and that's why they're brazen with it. That is, these are people who perhaps some of them have been shy or uncomfortable in conversation, and now they have a formula that no matter how it goes among the predictable ways it could go, they have a response that makes them feel triumphant. So that would be the reason why an exhibitionist would feel safe doing that stuff, and it's why there's this burgeoning troll game. We've got all these fabulous troll models out there these days who are teaching these guys how to do it, And they go out and they do it and they're just fishing for that opportunity. So a lot of my work has been about how do you give them something that they can't respond to in a way that claims triumph? And yes, you do raise the core problem that your friend mentioned, which is that they can try to say that you do this too. I would stay dogged about it and not reactive at all and not defending that you don't do it. I would be deaf to it. After all, they're deaf to it. As I think any move that they meld is perfectly fine for you to use in response to them, knowing that your heart's not in it. It's not a good move. You wouldn't use it with decent people. But with these guys, I would do anything. They've got to make it cost them. If we don't make it cost them, they're not going to settle back down. 
kind of like Popper's intolerance of intolerance, right? Because I feel like we're kind of slipping into, and I know you addressed this in your podcast about kind of ends justifying means. In this case, it seems more justified because they will continue to destroy freedom and other things in society if we allow them to continue to seemingly win or make the audience who's listening to these arguments believe that both sides are equally legitimate. Yeah, that's right. So the heart of this work, the psychoproctology work, you could say is a kind of a moral minimalism, or you could say the via negativa, what not to do. It's not about what to do. In a free adaptive society, you don't get to tell everybody how to live. You look around the world, apparently there's a whole lot of ways to live perfectly fine, and they're really diverse. But you still got to constrain assholes or it won't remain a free adaptive society. So that raises the two questions I've been dealing with for 25 years and just culminated in this book. One is, what is an asshole? What is a butthead? Since it can't just be whoever you butt heads with. In the third chapter, I list all of the ways we think we can identify them that don't work. And then I say, okay, well, what's left? And that's when I get into origins. And I say, I have to explain assholery from its origins. Only that way will I have a sense of what they might be. So the first question is diagnostic. And the second one is treatment and prevention, which is how do you humbly humble these people who will say or do anything to avoid humility? And it's a really big question. And I dedicate the book to future psychoproctologists who will do a better job than I have. But I do want to corner us with the question because I think we go extinct if we can't solve it. If you look over human history, this has been the underlying problem throughout. Yeah. There's two things I wanted to shoehorn a little bit in here. One was the alt-right playbook. Have you come across that? Sorry, you sent it to me yesterday. I haven't looked at it yet, and I'm bound to enjoy it. I also want to say that I want to extrapolate from cases. So the alt-right is fascinating to me these days. And one of the things I love about it is that you could mistake Stalin for a communist. You could mistake Hitler for a nationalist or anti-Semite. They're or assholes. Apparently. They're assholes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're assholes at a high extreme. They're dark triad, psychopath, etc. It's much harder to mistake alt-right or Trumpist for any belief system. There's nothing there. It's just like quintessential. It's beautiful that way, but I do not want to think of it as an alt-right problem. I think we got to grease our turrets. Our civil descents have to turn in every direction, to the supernaturalists above us, to the atheists below us, to the left, to the right, to the center, and to ourselves. We have to be looking for it in ourselves because it's just so tempting. This is exactly what you'd get. What do you get when you cross language with emotion? You get language that rationalizes the emotions. It's just so obvious. Yeah. Mm. Though I wow. want to say in that guy's defense, because he He's analyzing the all right, but you're right that it's not just on the right and it's not just exclusive to any particular group. But the playbook they use is actually very much similar to many things you've talked about for jerks. So I thought that might be a good collaboration. Like I said, I'm going to relish it. I'm definitely going to look into it. I have not looked at it at all. And I think that it's a great way to go. So this was an option for me. I was going to write a book called Troll Model, Trump Takeaways for the Hard Art of Spotting and Stopping Assholes or something like that. And then I realized, no, I actually am going to write a more generic version of it. But I did consider consider going the route that he did with the alt-right. The other thing was there's a YouTube channel called Some More News. It's very left-leaning and more humorous and light most of the time, but they released one called on the topic of why right-wing comedy isn't funny, and that is obviously controversial on its face because like, as people leaning left, we don't have the same sense of humor. But one of the things he kind of zeroes in on, among other things, that seems to ring true and also overlaps with what you've said is that the game for the right these days is basically trolling in the sense that it's not about 
about actually making jokes or making comedy. It's about frustrating their opponents and then laughing about the confusion and frustration when they fall for it. So not doing your fallibilism, basically taking it seriously, taking it face value and being like, what is this about? And then they laugh because you're confused. That's right. I'm kind of amazed by how much time I spend with comedy. And I do think that asshole comedy is going to be weekly the glee of being us as compared to those loser fools out there. And the left humor these days, not in communist times, but you could say the humanist humor is going to be, again, fallibilist irony. For example, the late night comedians in the United States, a Stephen Colbert or a Jimmy Kimmel, there's a lot of self-effacing humor in it that you will never get on the right. It's just not there. It's serving a different purpose. I think of comedy these days as the sweetest human congregation. It is communion of the right sort, which is it's us laughing at us with us. Everybody. Nothing human is foreign to us. I think, again, it's the antidote to fundamentalist hypocrisy and cynical hypocrisy. Cynical hypocrisy is, it's all a crapshoot, nobody knows anything, I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter if I disagree with myself. Fundamentalist is, no, there's a hard line, not that I could ever possibly live by it, but I will scold the world for not living by it, that kind of thing. Nice. So we want to be mindful of your time. We've been a little bit over an hour. Is there anything you want to promote or where people can find you? You've mentioned your book a number of times. Yeah. So I had to republish my book because I couldn't do any advertising with a full word asshole in it, alas. So (laughs) it's now what's up with assholes with two asterisks. It's available on Amazon in Canada and everywhere in the US. You could find way too much of me just by Googling my name, but also I have a consolidated site under the name jeremysherman.com. So if you just look up jeremysherman.com. And since we're on the topic and since you guys are from Canada, I just want to mention Trailer Park Boys is a great study in psychoproctology <laughs> because you're watching people, they don't have a cause. They don't have a mission other than keeping their heads above water moment to moment, and you're watching how easy it is to do that. I think it's beautiful that way. So I pay attention to assholes with a cause and assholes without a cause. I think there are differences between them, but the core concept is the same. And so for anybody in Canada, hats off to you. That's a good show for psychoproctologists like me. (laughs) (laughs) I need to watch that more often. Yeah, I haven't checked it out yet. But yeah, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure to be with you guys. Really a pleasure. Thanks for your great questions. Really liked it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Yeah. No, everything you've talked about was right in line with kind of the spirit of our podcast and so many concepts that we've already covered. And maybe we can speak again. I would love that. And also, I do find that covering the same concepts over and over is necessary. I worked in advertising for a while. I even taught advertising to MBA students for a while. The law of sevens. People don't get this stuff unless you say it a lot of times. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a university instructor, yourself and myself, it's something that I learned very quickly. Oh, you'll show up the next week. And remember what we talked about last week? No one has a clue what you're you're talking about. The ideal would be, and I call it robo-envy. The ideal is you just program someone with some line of code and it's in there. Not at all the case. Yeah. (laughs) Not at all. And so this has been kind of the perfect symbolism for what we stand for in having these conversations of kind of just being open to whatever and being kind of vulnerable to the uncertainty and trying to do our best to figure it out, I guess. Yeah, no, I think of it as folks sitting on the front porch of the universe speculating about it and us in it. That's my idea of a good time. So this has been great fun for me. Good. Glad you enjoyed it. And to the audience, thanks for tuning in and we hope to see you next time. I could be completely naked for all you guys know.